Hello and welcome back to Leader Up, a podcast of Army Management Staff College. Leader Up is a professional conversation where we discuss a broad range of leadership and leader development topics with an emphasis on the Army civilian professional. I'm your host, David Howie. On today's episode of Leader Up, we have a, a, a great patriot, a, a great true American. Uh, I want to introduce our audience to Mr. Dwayne Wagner. That's also retired Colonel Dwayne Wagner. And we're going to talk today about leaders of character. And we're also going to talk about an article that uh, Dwayne Wagner wrote a couple of years ago. And the name of that article is... We have come a long ways. We have a long ways to go. And that is about race relations, not only in the United States Army, but also in in kind of American society and American culture. And so let me, before we start this, let me kind of caveat and say the things that we're going to talk about are his and my personal opinions. So these nothing that we say really represents DOD or uh, or Army policy. So these are kind of our opinions, and also leader up audience. I'll just tell you that uh, uh, buckle up because some of you may hear some things that might uh, trigger you a little bit. But stay focused and listen. And if you're confused, reach out and listen for some more. And so, Dwayne Wagner, Colonel Dwayne Wagner, I want to thank you for being with us today on Leader Up and for giving up your time to talk about these topics. I appreciate the invitation. I've uh, I've been looking forward to this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. And so let's start with um, this this uh, idea of someone being a leader of character. Let's kind of talk about that first, and then we'll get to that article that you wrote. So just in general, what is a leader of character, and why does it matter uh, in in today's society, in today's military? Great question. The um, My view of a leader of character is someone who you would want to follow, I would want to follow, and our audience members would want to follow. This leader does what is right. Um, he or she follows the law. They are ethically bound. They embrace Army values, Army ethic, and they are focused on taking care of the organization. But more important, a leader of character exudes empathy and humility, and they are a human who's concerned about taking care of people. The last caveat would be a leader of character treats people with dignity and respect, and they are concerned about team building, whether they are a military member or an Army civilian professional. And that person would need to treat everyone equally, that person would need to to be even-handed in how they deal with uh, peers, subordinates, or superiors. Absolutely. We do, it's my opinion that we do a pretty good job of talking about being a leader of character. But if you take a look at the headlines and if you talk to our soldiers and our civilians, we are not at the point where Everyone believes that they're being treated with dignity and respect. One reason that the Deputy Commandant, uh, Brigadier General David Foley, is focusing on building character and commitment is that PME, uh, the Command and General Staff College, the Army Management Staff College, are two places where we can have our professionals self-reflect on what it means to be a leader of character, to do more than talking about it and to make the walk. And it's not easy all the time based on the stresses and the pressures that our leaders have. And sometimes we get we get pressures to look good, and that kind of gets us in trouble sometimes, does it not? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm drawing on two experiences as a military police officer for 30 years and as someone who served within the personnel community. I will tell you that if you if you look at criminal investigations or administrative investigations, that typically the person had the opportunity to say no or to stop, but for whatever reason, they moved forward with doing something 
that was illegal or immoral or unethical. How do we teach our rising professionals, TTPs, to say no or to say, boss, sir, ma'am, I can't do that, but I can do this. A leader of character is willing to stand up, do what's right, and let the chips fall where they may. And this has been a fight, correct me if I'm wrong, because you and I have served in the Army, uh, you a little bit longer than me. I came in 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 83. You're probably four or five years before that. Year group 78. Okay, and so that that kind of that post-Vietnam era was when this idea started to become important because during the Vietnam era, uh, we didn't we didn't have uh, the the kind of leader development opportunities that officers have now. The ninety day wonders we kind of threw people in to a a very quick training situation and then told them they're commissioned officers and they didn't have they didn't have the char- the building the character building to be able to to uh, go back and speak truth to power as we might say. Right. If you go back 50 or 40 years uh, and look at the various models we've had for leader development, we focused on officers. We didn't do a very good job with our non-commissioned officers, and our, our civilian development was almost non-existent. As you move forward, as you fast forward to where we are in 2023, we have robust PME for officers and NCOs, and for our Army civilian professionals, we are moving in that direction. So we're, we're heading in the right direction. But character development and talking about character development is something that we need to do in every aspect uh, of leadership. And I like the point that you made earlier. Um, at every turn, there's a choice point. And what choice am I going to make? And I think maybe education can help an officer see that I'm at a choice point and I can either choose to do this or I can choose to do that. And there's consequences for either choice that I make. And go, go ahead. you. Yeah, my, my frustration, and this is a personal frustration, is I believe that we can use PME for both officers and civilians to put them in role modeling scenarios where they talk about these future decisions and we help them understand how to say no or how to find another option. I, I believe we can do a better job of, of doing that. And I do too. I think we can get better and I think we can develop uh, leaders of character if we stay focused on that uh, as our goal. So I, I'd like to kind of switch gears and talk about this article that you wrote. And you this was published uh, about two years ago. We're recording this in June of 2023. So this article that you wrote, and it was published in Military Review, and the name of it, I'll, I'll say it one more time. And we have posted uh, a PDF of this in the show notes for this uh, episode The article that you wrote was called, We Have Come a Long Ways and We Have a Ways to Go. And it was specifically, if if I'm misspeaking, tell me, this is about race relations, not only in the Army, but in uh, American culture, American society. And uh, first of all, I, I, I I hate the term race because we're all part of the human race. Uh, So... I think it it's difficult to delineate people out like that, but it's kind of the way our culture has has been for the past uh, couple of hundred years. Let me just ask you, what motivated you to write this article? what what uh, gave you the impetus to to write that and publish it? I'm going to piggyback on on one of your comments um, in terms of race and and talk about tribalism. I walked into the deputy commandant's office about two and a half years ago. It was uh, then at that time Brigadier General Don Hill. And uh, we had a conversation about treating people with dignity and respect. And it was tied to what was going on in our nation regarding the George Floyd situation and some other friction and strife within America and the Army. 
General Hill and I met two or three times. And during that third meeting, he looked at me and he said, Dwayne, these are some great stories. I think you need to write an article. And I pushed back at General Hill. Sir, I, I hear you. I'm busy. I got to teach. I got to do that. And he gave me the look. And as I was walking out of his door, he says, Dwayne, I want you to write an article about your life, your father's journey, and your journey in the Army. And I want you to have it published within three to four months. And it wasn't what he said. It was how he was looking at me at the time. So I wrote that article literally because Brigadier General Don Hill asked me to do so. That was, a, that was in January. It was published three or four years later. Um, so my storytelling with a Brigadier General led to me writing the article. And I told you this when we spoke over the phone. And, and when I told you this, you said that you'd heard this from a lot of other people. And um, when I first saw that article that got sent out, I didn't want to read it. And why didn't I want to read it? Because I, I'm white. And so I don't, I don't want to read something that's going to make me feel bad, number one, about my country, number two, about myself or about the, you know, the society and culture uh, that I've lived in. And so a am I right to feel that way? Is that a natural reaction? Did you get that same reaction from other people? And, I, and let me, before you answer, after I read the article, I thought it was great and I thought it addressed things in our society, in our culture that needed to be addressed. And so I was glad that I did go ahead and read it because it, it enlightened me about things that I didn't understand. So was that, was that a common? Uh, that, that was more of a common thread than you know. And the reason I'm smiling is when I walked into Brigadier General Hill's office that first day, he had a video uh, that he was looking at. It was a podcast I did on cross-racial, cross-gender mentorship. And he stopped the video and he looked at me and he said, Dwayne, in this video you kept saying tribalism because you didn't want to say racism, and that's because you didn't want to turn anybody off and you wanted them to listen to you. I said, yes, sir. That's exactly why I used the phrase tribalism, because if I use racism too early in the narrative, there are some people who will not listen to me. So your reaction was more of a common reaction than you realize. I've had several people say to me, Dwayne, I didn't want to read that article because I assumed it would be another article bashing me. And others told me to read it or they asked me to read it. And after I read your article, I understood that you used both voices to talk to America and to talk to the Army. And that was my goal, to use two or three different voices within the conversation. And what kind of, what kind of responses did you get from, from black readers, from African Americans? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, my friends who are black or African American appreciated the article because they thought I did a very good job of talking to our journey through America and through the Army, because many times people suffer in silence. What I mean by suffer in silence, there are so many um, soldiers or Army civilian professionals who may have been treated a certain way or the wrong way based on who they are, race, ethnicity, or the color of their skin. And they suffer in silence just to survive. My article, they believe, gave a voice to to their journey too. And the suffering in silence is is this because this happened to me and I'm ashamed of it? It's more. It's it's less of this happened to me and I am ashamed of it to more of this happened to me, but I can't speak up because I have to survive and get promoted or I have to survive and stay on the team, or I have to survive and be viewed as someone who brings value to the organization. Did you encounter that as you were growing up as an officer? Did you ever feel like, I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with kind of the climate or the culture in my organization? Uh, I, 
I feel like I should say something. I don't know what to say, but I'm I'm going to choose to just continue to soldier. Ab- absolutely, uh, especially early in my career. I served from 1978 to 2008. So early in my career as a lieutenant or captain, yes. I'll give you, let me share a story with you. I, I received an efficiency report as a first lieutenant, and my raider said, Dwayne, you write very well. It's obvious that you are not a graduate of a historically black college. So I pushed the OER back to the captain and said, Sir, I graduated from Historically Black College, and if you want to change this OER, please feel free to do so. He turned beet red in the face because he knew that he had insulted me and my education. So, so yes. Now, what I could have done in that situation was to suffer in silence and to remain quiet, and I chose to, to speak up. the the name of your article we've we've come a long ways and we have a ways to go uh very intriguing and there's a there's a a little cartoon on the article it's the two voices uh and the and the and the white person is saying we've come a long ways saying hey we're, we're we've made great strides you know we ha- we've had a black president we've had uh, black four star generals and we've now got the second uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs that's black. So we've come a long way. So uh, you guys should just kind of be comfortable with what we're doing. But then the black voice in that cartoon is is saying we have a ways to go. And so if you can, what is the 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 destination that we're looking for? In other words, what if we, if we've come a long ways from where we were, but we still have a ways to go? What is the the ways to go? What is it that we're we're trying to get to in our in the army, uh, in American society, in American culture, regarding tribalism or race relations. Right. So let's take both voices. Each voice is true based on their touch of the elephant, their life experience, and their journey. So that's why I say we must listen to both voices or all voices because each is true. However, each voice has a limitation because it doesn't take into account the journeys of others. You use the term destination, and I am so glad you use the term destination because so many people I talk to, they'll say, Dwayne, when are we going to get there? I'm a good man. I I do everything the right way. I treat each person with dignity and respect, but yet society tells me that that I'm I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, and we have such a long ways to go. What, What do you want? So let's take your use of the word destination. In my mind, it's not a destination. It's a journey. And here's what I mean by journey. Our goal should be to get better, and better as we move forward and not to ever believe or think that there's a destination. And the reason I don't believe there's a destination is because humans are involved and our our tribal nature. There are six pieces of pie and seven people. There's there's the competitiveness of, of life. So if we can, if, as we move forward as a nation, as we move forward as an army, can we find a way to self-reflect, look at ourselves to make sure that each of us is doing the best we can? And from a strategic and organizational perspective, can the army make sure that as she is making decisions about X, Y, and Z, we're doing so in an impartial and fair manner? A former senior leader within the Army, Anselm Beach, uh, recently left the Army, but he was in charge of diversity and inclusion. And we had several conversations. And here's what I learned from, from SES Beach. There's quantitative diversity where you walk into the room and you start counting to see if there are any women, 
to see if there are any blacks, are there any Hispanics, are there any Asians? And you tell yourself, if you see a certain percentage, proportional number, we're good. Well, Mr. Beach says, be very careful because there's qualitative diversity. And here's qualitative diversity. If I walk into a room and everybody's purple, and if I do a survey and my people believe that they're being treated with dignity and respect and they have an equitable or fair opportunity for promotion and selection, qualitative diversity, good command climate, good command culture, we have to balance both. And we are so focused on quantitative diversity that we sometimes forget that the qualitative diversity is important too. And so what you're saying is that it's, it's, if, I, if I have your point right, it's not just about counting the, the numbers of this, this group or the, this group of minority or that group of minority in the formation and then saying, hey, I've got this percentage there. I'm good. Uh, you're saying that it has to be deeper than that, that everybody that's in that formation has to come on board and say, I feel like I am respected and treated with dignity in this organization. That's my view. And and that view is based on my interactions with, uh, with Mr. Beach uh, back and forth because I wasn't initially sold, but as I did more research and reading and thinking, as a former organizational commander, as a former battalion commander, uh, 636 soldiers uh, within my formation, it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And this kind of takes it away from the, the just measuring the numbers to, to really looking holistically at the relationships uh, between the people that are in, and especially between the leaders uh, and the subordinates. Yes, yes. And so at what point or will there be a point where color, ethnicity, uh, the amount of melanin that somebody has in their skin no longer matters? And, and let me give you a couple of examples. I just heard uh, in the past two weeks uh, we've nominated a new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's an Air Force four-star right. general, and he's black. Right. And he is the second black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the first one being Colin Powell, and that was 30-something years ago. Um, I noticed that when our current CAC commander came in, uh, General Beagle, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Channel 4 came up, and they and the guy stood out in front of the front gate, and I had no idea about this because I'm so far down the pecking order, but he said, uh, this three-star general is going to take command of Fort Leavenworth. And by the way, he's the first black officer to command Fort Leavenworth. And I'm thinking to myself, do, do we need to keep pointing that out? And so if there's a third chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that's black, a fourth, a fifth, uh, talk 20 years down the road, do, does that need to be kept pointed out? Or at some point, do we just accept the man or the soldier or the woman for who they are as an individual for their own accomplishments and not uh, point out, uh, you know, what their ethnicity or, or, or race is? That's a wicked question uh, with a bipolar answer. I look forward to the day when these announcements are made and I get into the narrative under the title, and we don't mention race or gender, and we just focus on their accomplishments. We're not there yet. We're not there yet because we are still breaking some barriers, or it's been such a long time to where it is newsworthy to let people know uh, this person's heritage. When will we get there? I, I don't know, but I think we're on the downside. I, I really do. As I read, as I read articles, let me give you a couple touch points. In 1987, I was in graduate school, um, and my studies took me to Washington, D.C. 
to interview the first black colonel who served on the Pentagon on the Army staff. He said before he arrived, they brought everybody into an auditorium, several different sessions, to tell them that he was coming and how to treat him. Fast forward, we would never do that. I was, I happened to be the first black officer to take command of the 705th MP Company, MP Battalion in 1996. In 1996, the first black officer. But that is not significant because black officers had been commanding battalions in the 80s, the 70s, and the 60s. So I think as we move forward, there's going to be less of that. I I really do. Um, Sometimes I cringe when I watch the news reports because I believe they overly focus. And if if you talk to women, uh, because I've done so the last two to three decades, they, in my personal view, they're ready for the, the same. I took command of a battalion. Three of my four company commanders happened to be women, and my father pointed that out. He called them girls, okay? He called, he called them girls. And I said, Daddy, they're not girls. They're Army captains. They're company commanders. And that afternoon in my first staff meeting, my three company commanders thanked me for correcting my father. So that was 1996. That would never happen today. So I, I think as we move forward, we're, we're, doing, we're doing much better. But if the second part of your question, do I think our focus on race, ethnicity, color will, will ever go away? I don't think so. It's my personal opinion that we're so tribal in nature, it won't. I'm going to ask you later on to find a video clip from a movie, Black and White, with Kevin Costner. He's on the. He's in a courtroom. He's on the witness stand, and someone is asking him a question about race. And Costner, Costner knows he's being baited. His response is, "Yes, I see race, but I don't think about it very long." And that's the issue. We're going to see race or ethnicity, but don't think about it very long. But, but. Um I've heard this from uh, from black people that I've known in the right. past that when you're a young black man growing up or a young black woman growing up and you look at the higher levels uh, of either the organization that you're in or in our case, the army, and you say that there weren't any role models. I, I didn't think that a per- someone who looked like me could get to that level. And so in, in that way, has it been helpful? To have those people in higher positions and to say, yes, you too, if you work hard and go to school uh, and study uh, and apply yourself, you can get to a higher level. And let's go back 40, 50 years, maybe 60 or 70, those role models weren't there in, in American society. So is that, is that a part of the equation also? Is- Absolutely. That is a part of the equation. If I take you back 60 or 50 years, we, we were in an America that used affirmative action and quotas as part of the selection process because we knew that in the beginning there had to be role models because people have to see themselves to know that they can be successful. As we move forward, into 2023, the question is, how much should that be a factor as we make decisions? Uh, you, if you look at a current Supreme Court case regarding affirmative action in college admissions, the nation right now is, is struggling. Are we there yet? Are we far enough in the journey to where that should not be a factor or it should be less of a factor? And my last caveat I'll make is this. I spoke at Park University uh, earlier this year on Black History Month celebration. And I made the statement that one doesn't have to be one to love one or take care of one. And I pointed to 
uh, Brigadier General retired Wampler, who was sitting in the front row, who looks like you. And I said, that man takes care of me. That man looks out for me. Let me ask you about this this part of this debate, and it's and it's this: at will it be more and more difficult as we progress in American society to even have the buckets or the categories where we put people in? In other words, um, so many so many people now are. And I don't even like this term, biracial. Right. Um, my children, my two children are, are part Asian. So w- what bucket uh, do they go in? And I've seen countless students uh, in the classroom talk about not wanting to be uh, put into, like, what folder do I put you in? Right. And uh, there is some ease uh, if I can put you into a folder and, you okay, you're in that group mentally and that's that's where you are but people resist that i think and so are we getting to a point where it is becoming more and more difficult to say that someone is uh, that group or uh, uh, another group that's a um that question requires two responses okay so the first one you're absolutely correct as you take a look at American society or the demographics of our army, it's much more difficult to put people into a bucket because they belong in two or three buckets. Our younger generations are moving toward, I want to be defined as human. I don't want to be defined as black or brown or red or, or yellow. So we're, we're moving in that direction. However, let me caveat that. I have four grandchildren. Three of my four grandchildren are biracial. They're half black and they're half white. My fourth grandchild, Ryan, is white or Caucasian. So I will tell you from my perspective, as I watch my grandchildren, my two, my grand, our grand twins, uh, who are six years old, you can look at them and tell that they are biracial. They are going to be treated as black. Now, you define what that means any way you want. I believe when they are 16, 17, 18 years old, when a police officer pulls them over, they're going to walk up to the vehicle and make a mental snapshot of a young black man. And if that means they're treated differently or not, that's the challenge we have. I believe, and this is personal, I haven't done the research, I think we're two generations away from having a society where it is, it is, oh my God, you just won't be able to put people into, into buckets. But remember, I'm a little bit different. I'm the same guy who in 1997, uh, during Black History Month, and in 2021, during Black History Month, said I look forward to the day when we don't have a Black History Month because we understand that Black history is American history. Right, and do you share the uh, the sentiments of uh, Morgan Freeman, who said he said he doesn't like that term because I don't. He said I don't want the my history to be relegated to just one month because Black history, the the way we look at it now with uh, Harriet Tubman. Uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Booker T. Washington, those are Americans. Absolutely. That, that's American history. That's not just a niche piece of, 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 of history. And uh, I read Booker T. Washington's book that's an American story. I mean, it's unique because of how he grew up. But when you read through it, it, it embraces all the things that, that have made our country great, in my opinion. You and I agree. But in fairness, I need, to, I need to speak the voices of my friends and colleagues who say, Dwayne, I understand what you're saying, but my fear is America or education or history won't pull in black history and give it its due uh, recognition. 
I recently wrote a poem about Juneteenth. The name of the poem is Juneteenth Freedom's Journey, 1619 to 2123. And I used a historical approach and tied in how enslaved Africans, black blacks and African-Americans have been a part of this nation's journey since we were brought here on slave ships or as indentured servants. Um, so you're absolutely correct. We are part of the American tapestry. And so I, I can you talk a little bit more about Juneteenth? Of course. Because last, correct me if I'm wrong, last year was the first year, June of 2022, when it was a national holiday. Right, right. And so just for our audience, folks out there that don't know, what is Juneteenth? What does it mean to you personally? Uh, and why is it important that uh, the United States of America celebrate that as a national holiday? Let's let's go all the way back to 1776, where the colonists rose up against the king, and we established uh, the beginning of America. And there was freedom when that occurred for the colonists, but not for the enslaved Africans or the blacks. So most of the people were free, but not all the people were free. Let's fast forward from 1776 to 1865, where this nation fought the American Civil War, and the primary reason was slavery and states' rights. At that time, we freed more people, and we were moving toward full freedom. Well, that full freedom didn't occur with the Emancipation Proclamation because there was a two-year gap, and that two-year gap was when the word finally got to Galveston, Texas, and the slaves, the enslaved Africans and the slaves were freed two years later. If you think about freedom's journey, freedom's journey ended with Juneteenth, when the word finally got to Texas. So America should embrace Juneteenth because that's when all of us were freed, and we should celebrate that because that is what America is about. And, th and that's an American celebration. Absolutely. It's not a black celebration or African-American celebration. It is an American celebration to celebrate freedom. Um, I want to talk to you about a couple of the instances that you mentioned in your article. Uh, one was an, uh, when you were cutting the grass at your own home, uh, and, the, and the other one is when your wife answered the door and was asked something to the effect of, is the lady of the house home? And then the other one is when you were taking a cab home and right. you had a black cab driver. Just those, just what what happened in those instances and kind of what's the emotion that, that's taken away from that when things like that happen? Yeah, I want you to I want you to imagine being an army captain selected for the fully funded program, considered to be a highly competitive officer to move to a small town in Texas and to rent a home in a pretty good neighborhood and to spend 18 months with people challenging, why are you there? Who are you? Uh, you don't deserve to be here. So the house we rented in Huntsville, Texas, we had to move out of it five or six months later because the owner didn't know that the real estate company had rented the home to us. And I was cutting the grass, and a, and a gentleman stopped the car, and he looked. He rolled the window down, and he looked at me and said, hey, how much, would you, how much are you charging to cut grass? In his mind, he did not believe that I was the occupant of that home. So when I told him that I lived here, he simply rolled his window up and and moved on. The um, 
A salesman knocked on the door. My wife opened the door, and he looked at her and said, May I speak to the lady of the house? And my wife said, Excuse me? May I speak to the lady of the house? At that point, my wife figured out that he assumed that she was a housekeeper or maid or someone else because there's no way that a black woman lives in this house. And the third vignette is the cab driver. I gave him the address of where I lived, and he said, are you sure you live there? I said, yeah, I'm kind of sure I live there. He said, well, brother, we don't live in that neighborhood. I said, well, I live in that neighborhood, and he took me. And when I got out of the cab, he said, you be careful. But here's what I need for people to understand. Folks will listen to those stories from circa 1987, 1988, and they'll say, Dwayne, that was such a long time ago. Those things don't happen anymore. Oh, yes, they do. They continue to happen. That's why we need to talk about them above the table. And and so uh, part, part of the lesson is, for me, for, for everyone, is don't make assumptions about someone else based on what you see because there's something – there may be something deeper. And so if the guy wanted to talk to you about cutting grass, um, it would be a deeper conversation. Right. Uh, you live here. Right. Do you live here? Really? You live here? Um, and maybe that maybe if, if I'm willing to devote more time and understanding, but are things like that is that done out of out of overt meanness or antagonism, or is it just simple ignorance that that's for the, for the man who thinks you're the hired help? Is it because that's all he's ever seen? He's never seen uh, a black man who owns a house in this neighborhood. And he's never seen a black man in that neighborhood if he's not uh, the the yard man. It's just is it is it ignorance? And and it's and if we can interact with each other and educate, uh, is that is that the kind of the the cure for for that kind of ignorance? It's my personal opinion that most times it's unconscious bias based on a person's life experience and their journey. And some of the time, uh, is it only bigotry or hatred or tribalism or racism? If you force me to give a proportion or a percentage, I'm going to tell you 75% of the time is ignorance and unconscious bias, and 25% of the time is people just being, being mean, racist, bigoted. But to answer your question— uh, and I've had two or three recent conversations with people. The Americans who have the ability to leave their, their cocoon and to interact with others who are not like them over time generally have the ability to, to move away from the unconscious bias. People ask if, if education will help. Well, maybe. I'm not an expert. I don't know. I do know that interaction with others who are not like you will help. And that knife cuts both ways. My family's from Black Dallas, okay? What I mean when I say Black Dallas is you can grow up in one part of Dallas and be taught that all white people are evil until you leave Dallas and you figure out that it's not true. So, yeah, I believe interaction, growth, travel is the best, to- is the best tonic for, for getting better as we move forward. And you, you and I talked about this on the phone, if you, if you recall, but my, my own personal experience, I grew up in Lancaster, South Carolina in the 60s and early 70s, and it was a completely segregated uh, culture. Black people lived on one side of town. White people lived on the other side of town. There wasn't a lot of interaction. There was some. Schools started being integrated in in the early 70s. Um, but it was, it like your article says, we had a long ways to go. That was a start. And um, 
the, we had we had uh, the, they were the only two ethnicities in that town. You either black or white. We we had no Hispanic people. We didn't have Asian people. We had a very small population of of Jewish people, and also a very small population of Catholic people. And that that was also another group that uh, where if you were Catholic, people kind of knew that uh, in that environment. But then I, my parents sent me to military school, to a school that you and I have talked right. about, Fourth Union Military Academy. And here I am, 14 years old in military school, and there's all kinds of people. There's Hispanic people from Central and South America. There's Asian people. Uh, there's, there's black people from all over the country. Uh, there's black people from Africa that have that accent that, you know, we— we hear that so different from from what I was used to, and one of my roommates was uh, from Pakistan, and so I started to see as a young man at fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen that I have more in common with these people uh, than I previously understood, and it's because we're all kind of uh, in this environment together, and we had to work together. It's kind of like I, I assume a lot of. Uh, Young people who uh, go into the army experience that because when they grow up, they're kind of in in a little cocoon. Yes. And then and then and I'll let you talk now. You're you're the guest, so I'll I'll let you. No, these these are beautiful stories, and your journey is much more of a journey uh, than than people know. In 1984, there was a private in my company. And uh, 30 years later, he said, sir, when I was in your company in 1984, I was a racist and I was a bigot. It took me about six or seven years for me to do some self-reflection and to understand. He retired as a command sergeant major. He came through uh, Leavenworth about six years ago. He left home. He joined the Army. He entered the Army as a racist and a bigot, and 30, 35 years later, he had gone through enough self-reflection to admit that. So travel and interaction with others is the tonic in, in many cases. I have a friend who teaches over at CGSC. His first year at West, his first night at West Point, he used a term that his roommate found offensive. He didn't know it was an offensive term. But because he left Montana and went to the military academy and roomed with a black man, he was able to learn. Fast forward, that black man retired as a three-star general, and my friend retired as a colonel. And my friend is much more aware because of that experience. The last story i tell you is about my wife, Edna. My wife graduated from Opelousas High School in Louisiana um, in 1973. In 1978, they had the reunion, a black reunion and a white reunion. In 1983, they had their second reunion, a black reunion and a white reunion. Their first several reunions were segregated. They were segregated not because of the kids, but the parents. The parents didn't want, the white parents didn't want their kids intermingling with the black kids. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. My wife went to her 50th high school reunion two months ago. It's integrated now. The one before that was integrated. One reunion. My point being, I don't know if there's a destination, but I know within this journey, we're getting better. And that's a good waypoint. And, and I'm going to assume that because you said that, that you are, are not in favor, I'll let you speak for yeah. yourself, are or are not in favor of this idea that we have segregated out graduation ceremonies based on uh, ethnicity or race. Is that, is it? Do you, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Uh, because I've done some research and I've talked, I have talked to several parents and students 
to wrap my my brain about what what's going on. Um, affinity groups, whether they are based on race or gender or lifestyle, what I think is happening is pick a university, un- University X. They'll have a graduation ceremony for all, but what is happening is the Black Student Union or the His- Hispanic Caucus or the the Women's Freedom Movement, and I just made up three three groups just to show the the differences. They are meeting separately to celebrate who they are. So it's not a separate graduation ceremony. It's a chance to come together with people who are alike to, to, to celebrate. But let's take this a little farther. And this gets me in trouble with my black friends, and, and I get it. If white men were to say, let's have a meeting during after graduation and only we are invited, what would be the perspective? Now, I honestly believe that's an apples and oranges uh, comparison based on, on, on history and, and the, the, the evolution of our, our nation. But I do understand the concern that are we segmenting ourselves again after the 1960s when we all wanted integration, equal access, and for all of us to be together. Uh, I have a friend. His daughter just graduated from a major university. Um, They went to the graduation, and then afterward, the Black Student Union had a celebration, and they attended that. And he he and I had a back and forth about what is that going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years. And so I want to start to wrap this conversation up a little bit, and um, I want to let's uh, after I ask this question, let's kind of go back and and uh, address how this all supports being a leader of character. So let's let's go back in time now to let's say uh, 30, 35 years ago, and and I'm I'm a young uh, white uh, army captain, and I'm going to meet with uh, Colonel Dwayne Wagner and talk to him about this topic. What would be the advice or the counsel that you would give me as a late 20s young man who's just starting out in his Army career about this topic? If I'm white, what kind of advice or insight would you give? And then same question, if I'm a young black officer, what kind of insight or advice would you offer? If you were a white male captain and wanted to sit down and have a cup of coffee with me, to talk about diversity and inclusion, race relations, team building, and being a leader character. I would ask you to suspend all your assumptions, which is a phrase that Brigadier General Foley uses when he talks to us. Suspend your assumptions and to have a conversation with people, other people, about their journey, their life, their experiences, and put your feet into their shoes, and to do more listening than talking so you can understand. And if you do that with enough people over time, if you had or have any preconceived notions, they will probably so slowly wash away. Now, if you are a black captain and we're going to sit down and have coffee, I'm going to ask you to do the same, to talk to this person, these people, about their journey and their life and to put your feet into their shoes. But I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to ask you to be very careful with jumping to conclusions and to give people some grace because I will tell you that 67-year-old Dwayne Wagner, as he thinks about 27-year-old Dwayne Wagner or 37-year-old Dwayne Wagner, was probably too quick to go to a negative assumption about somebody because I didn't have the whole story. So regardless of who you are, 
the the parable of the five blind men and the elephant comes into play. Talk to as many people as you can. Touch different parts of that elephant. Do some self-reflection and ask yourself, are you treating everybody with, with dignity and respect? And, and, and struggle with your bias. Struggle with your unconscious bias. And get feedback. Absolutely. From, from others. Absolutely. Right. I, I, we have a mutual friend, uh, a, a good friend of mine, and that's uh, Jerome Hawkins. He said one of the wisest things that I've ever heard a man say uh, about five years ago, and I don't know what we were talking about, but he said this. He said, everybody has a story about why they didn't get promoted. And when he said that, I thought, yeah, because when you ask people, they've got this long line of stuff. And um, it could be, if I'm white, I didn't get promoted because they had a quota system. If I'm black, I say, well, I didn't get promoted uh, because the people on the board were racist against me and they could they knew who I was, even though we don't have pictures or whatever the case is. And the truth could be, you didn't get promoted because the people who did had a better file than you, period, end of statement. Can I respond to that one? Yes. Uh, Colonel retired Jerome Hawkins and I have a mutual experience. I served as a field grade assignment officer at PERSCOM in the mid-90s, and, and uh, Colonel Hawkins served in senior leader development uh, in the personnel world uh, managing colonels. When I was on the desk at HRC managing majors and lieutenant colonels, when the lieutenant colonel list would come out, I would get three types of phone calls from the non-selects. The white males would call, and they would want to know the percentage or proportion of women and blacks selected. The black non-selects would want to know what was the selection rate for whites. The women would call and want to know what was the selection rate for men. So he's absolutely correct. If I had 23 MPs, non-select lieutenant colonel, they each wondered, did the board process favor another group or another group? And in night and from 1993 to 1995, I had to explain to them that the Army stopped doing that in the late 70s and the early 80s because of three lawsuits, three federal lawsuits. So when we're not selected for something, we have to have a boogeyman. All of us. All of us. And that's that's the tribalism. Absolutely. Because if, if, if I don't get, if I'm not advantaged, then it's because somebody else, right. there's somebody else out there that got something. I think the term is relative perceived deprivation. And now I'm aware that somebody else got something that I think I should have gotten. And it's because of who I am or not, or just because of what I look like, right. not because of what I've done. Um, and yeah, it's, it's easy yeah. to fall back into that trap. Um, I want to give you one, just one more vignette that happened to me uh, when I was a company commander that, that, that made me rethink uh, a lot of things. So I had a, had a, a new lieutenant who came in and uh, he was a graduate of Ole Miss and their, their kind of their school flag and this is in the 80s, was the Confederate flag or the Confederate battle flag. And uh, just like, kind of like at the Citadel. And they wave it and use it at football games. They run in with it. And in the late 70s, I'd say the early 80s, there was starting to become some pushback. But this young man, and he was 23, 24 years old, he came in and in his platoon area, he put his Confederate flag up over his desk. Proudly, that's his school symbol. Um, and so, as I say, about a month later, his platoon sergeant, who was black, came to me and said, Sir, can I talk to you? Absolutely. Came in, we closed the door. He wasn't defiant. He wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't demanding. He wasn't rude. He just very respectfully said to me, We have this flag up in our platoon area, me and some of the other. Black soldiers are uncomfortable with it. Would you talk to the lieutenant and ask him to take it down? And my first reaction was, 
why would you be uncomfortable with the Confederate flag? Because when I was growing up, the Confederate flag was everywhere. Where I, We had Dixie uh, baseball. We had Dixie uh, barbecue, Dixie dry cleaners. And, and that flag was everywhere. And as I'm thinking through that and looking at it, it all of a sudden, it just zipped into my mind. I get it. I, now I understand why that flag is uncomfortable. And so I did speak to the platoon leader, and he didn't flinch. And he took that he took that flag down. And him and that platoon sergeant had a great relationship. And um, I think we handled that correctly. But the Confederate flag meant something for me growing up because I saw it everywhere. It meant something different for for you. And just tell tell us a little bit about that. We would uh, travel with our father, who was a sergeant in the army in the 1960s and the um, the early 70s. And uh, when we were in Texas or Arkansas or Georgia, Mississippi, there were a couple times where we saw Klan rallies or use of the Confederate flag um, in a convoy. And it was always a, a fearful negative experience. Um, so to come into the Army in 1978 as a platoon leader and later as a company commander, I would have soldiers from the South who wanted to put their Confederate flag up in the room and uh, we would have to have conversations with what that flag meant to others. Some would understand, others did not. In the uh, late 70s and early 80s, they would take, this is my heritage approach. But we didn't see it that way. But I have a, uh, a story I'd like to share with you. Okay. Because I want to I wanna balance this conversation a little bit. You talked about your lieutenant and that Confederate flag. In 1999, when I was a CAS Cube instructor, Combined Armed Services Staff School instructor, lieutenant colonel, uh, teaching 12 captains, uh, after graduation, we, we had a social. One of my students who had just graduated started crying. And he looked at me and he said, Sir, I'm embarrassed to say this, but you need you need to know. On the first day of class, when you walked in, I said to myself, what can this N-word teach me? And the captain's crying, and there are four or five other captains watching him. I said, go on. Sir, you're the best instructor I've ever had, and I have some issues with race based on who I am, where I grew up, that I need to work through. So that captain had a come-to-Jesus moment with himself about his bigotry and his racist views and had done some self-reflection because he had judged me based on the color of my skin. And was that, was that helpful for you? Did, did that, was that beneficial for you to hear that? Absolutely. From- the, the, the fact that he felt comfortable enough to say that to me, to share that with me in front of his peers and to apologize was huge. It was, it was huge. And I know what I was going to say uh, about that Confederate flag uh, vignette. Later, I, I was thinking about it, and I wondered, would I have been able to deal with it in the same way, if it was a black officer who had uh, the black power fist flag with the African colors, you know the flag I'm right, talking about, right. and a white person came in and said, that flag makes me uncomfortable, would I have been able to deal with it in the same way? And and I I would have been way more uncomfortable let, doing let, that. Let's, let's talk about that because uh, a leader of character – has to have the ability to look at a situation, to have several conversations, and then do what is what is right. Uh, sometimes we have to go to JAG and 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 get a a readout from JAG about what we can do and what we we cannot do. But a leader of character moves forward with that. 
Uh, there are others who are hesitant. They avoid. They they stick their head into the sand, and they are not leaders of character. So it, it's a anytime you bring humans together from different cultures, it's there are going to be some tough tough situations to deal with. And so I want to close this conversation out uh, with just reviewing a little bit about how all of this that we've talked about really comes back to uh, being a leader of character. I believe that a leader of character is someone who does what is right, regardless of the outcome, and builds his or her organization by treating everyone with dignity and respect. Um, integrity, ethics, morals, it's all about doing the right thing. And so, uh, retired Colonel Dwayne Wagner, I, I really want to thank you for, for giving up your time and being with us today on Leader Up. Uh, thank you so much for your candor, uh, your empathy, and, and the service that you've given to our country and the United States Army. Thank you so much. This has been a uh, great session for me, and I want your audience to know that they can reach out to me personally via email uh, or on Facebook, and if I've said anything that doesn't make sense, uh, I'll be willing to uh, have a conversation with them. You can find me at uh, DwayneWagner at Hotmail.com, and uh, I look forward to the emails. And so, Leader Up audience, what did you hear today? What are you are you comfortable with this conversation? Did we did we kind of push any of your buttons to make you think about uh, kind of the way you see things? Do you understand maybe a little bit differently? Are there people around you that you need to engage with and and have this kind of a discussion with? And uh, tread lightly. But, but don't be afraid. Don't despair. We're all people. We can all talk to each other and engage. And uh, make sure to subscribe to our Facebook page and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page also. And join us again for another edition of Leader Up. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or would like to learn more about our podcast, please check the description for our email and for our website. Thanks for listening. 